Welcome to Assembly Point, a brand new monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. The devastating circumstances of the Grenfell Tower tragedy brought the subject of fire safety into sharp focus. But has anything changed since that day in 2017? What is being done to ensure that everyone involved in the design, construction and management of buildings, as well as those who occupy them, understands their role in minimising the risks? Our host for the series is Howard Passy, the FPA's Director of Operations and respected fire industry professional. From legislative change, updated guidance and improving safety standards to the need for greater education and training, join us as we talk with experts and influencers from across industries to move the debate on fire safety forwards and identify ways to work together to improve standards. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to our first episode of Assembly Point. I'm your host, Howard Passy, Director of Operations and Principal Consultant at the Fire Protection Association. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Fitzpatrick, former Labour MP and Fire Minister, and currently Chair of UK-based charity FireAid. Jim, um, welcome. Thanks very much for taking some time out today to, uh, to chat with us on this podcast. Just by way of kicking things off and, and for the benefit of our listeners, could you... Uh, Start by giving us a, a little background on your career in the fire industry to date and what your focus is at, uh, at this moment in time. Certainly hard, and uh, thanks for uh, the invitation to join you. Um, my uh, association um, with the fire service started in 1974 when I uh, was recruited and joined London Fire Brigade as an operational uh, firefighter. Um, I, I undertook uh, normal fire, fireman duties until 1986 when I was elected as a, a lay official of the union um, and undertook representative body duties from then until I was elected to uh, parliament in 1997. So half of my time was as an operational firefighter and half of my time was as a, a lay union official. Um, I was elected MP for Poplar in 97 and 98 helped a guy called Doug Smith um, set up the all-party parliamentary group on fire safety. Um, and uh, it took an interest in all matters fire from then on and is still functioning today as a very effective pressure group uh, within parliament. Um, in those days, we took interest in things like the fire at Lackanel House and the ongoing campaign for sprinkler systems and um, in more buildings than they required. Uh, review of approved document B, um, trying to get flooding as a, introduced as a statutory duty um, for fire brigades and, and various um, other issues. Um, 2001, I joined the government as a whip, and in 2005-06, I was fire minister at the Department of Environment. Um, 2007 until um, 2009, I was at the Department for Transport and was a road safety minister as well as a minister for other responsibilities. Um, and in 2010, when Labour lost the election and I went back onto the opposition uh, backbenches, um, I rejoined the all-party fire group as secretary. Um, and uh, we were very active under the secretaryship of uh, uh, former Chief Fire Officer Ronnie King, all the way up to and including Grenfell, where the work intensified significantly. Um, and I was on the Transport Select Committee and kept an interest in, in those issues as well. Um, 2015, um, uh, FireAid, uh, International Aid and Development Charity for the UK fire industry was set up, and I've been chair of that since uh, 2015. Uh, and in 2020, I was invited to join the 
Fire Protection Association, the UK's leading fire safety organization, as a non-executive director. So um, uh, my uh, association with fire goes back to 1974, Harold, but in a variety of different guises. Absolutely, a very wide and varied career, but interesting that so much of it has touched on fire. And also interesting that um, some of those things that you started, um, or certainly were instrumental in starting, the all-party parliamentary group, for example, um, still continues to this day. Uh, you know, to to you know to provide opportunities to to access ministers and, and government, and um, you know continue to campaign um, and campaign for you know I think all of the right things that. Um, much of the fire industry have been pressuring for for some years, including um, more widespread use of sprinklers, review of, of approved document B and such like. Um, I know this is going to sound a, like a bit of a loaded question, really, but um, given the, the variety of what you've, what you've been able to involve yourself in over the years, um, I'm just wondering which aspects have given you most pleasure or those that you're, you're most proud of? Well, the, the beauty of um, being a parliamentarian is that you're expected to operate on a whole number of uh, different levels, Harold. Um, the constituency activity, um, representing organisations, um, dealing with them, trying to help them with the problems, um, meeting individual constituents who have issues that they need your assistance with and trying to sort them out really keeps your feet in the ground because you can see and the problems that um, uh, people have in their ordinary lives and, and, and those issues can basically be anything and, and everything. And being um, Road Safety Minister, uh, a job I had for two years, so I had my chance to get my feet under the table and, and get to know the issue a lot more than I, 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 I was aware of previously, um, was one which gave me uh, great pride and, uh, and satisfaction meeting so many great people in our first responder and emergency medical services doing such fantastic work at saving lives, um, as well as playing football for the parliamentary football team and uh, playing other parliaments in different parts of the world. That was a great side issue as well. I was hoping we would avoid the subject of football, um, only on the basis that um, I'm a Millwall supporter and, uh, and, and you're a West Ham fan. So uh, clearly some areas there that we need to avoid. Um, so swiftly moving on. You talked about your time in London Fire Brigade, and and I think before we go on to talk in more depth about policy, which is uh, the main focus of uh, the episode today, um, what pressures do you think the UK Fire and Rescue Services are under due to the ongoing pandemic? Um, are they more stretched than normal? And do you feel there's an increased risk of fire due to people spending more time in their homes? Well, I'm, I'm not sure about the increased risk of fire. I suppose because people are spending more time at home, there's... Um, there's the increased potential uh, for risk. Whether that actually is materialised in, in statistical evidence, I uh, obviously it's a bit early to tell, but all the first, all the emergency services are under huge pressure, simply because we, we went through austerity for so long and everybody had to tighten their belts and, and uh, work as hard as they, as they could. But the COVID-19 is obviously putting additional pressure on all of those services and the fire brigade is no different. They're undertaking additional um, uh, coronavirus duties like driving ambulances and helping out with, uh, with logistics. Um, as well as put themselves in the front line, obviously at the risk of uh, uh, being infected by the, uh, by the disease uh, themselves. But the reductions in the numbers of fires and fatalities over 
uh, recent decades has meant that there are fewer fire stations, fewer fire engines, um, fewer firefighters, um, and that intensifies the pressure on individuals. And then there are things like floods, uh, which we used to get occasionally, are now almost a weekly, certainly a monthly occurrence right the way through winter, even sometimes in, in summer. And the fire brigade undertakes a lot of work when there is a flood in any a local area. So um, the fire service, I think, like all of our emergency services, is continuously under um, uh, enormous pressure, and it's been more intensified because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I, you know, I agree with you absolutely. I think that the the fact that fire service funding was cut so significantly um, from 2013 onwards for a period of five or six years by a third, I think, is the the estimate I've heard. Um, it's remarkable that we continue to see you know, fire deaths and injuries uh, decrease, but, you know, testament to the hard work that the fire and rescue services are doing, um, but clearly not a particularly easy position for them to be in at the moment when they're expected to do so much more than uh, they may ordinarily have been engaged in. You know, you mentioned flood um, and COVID has also clearly brought a, uh, a huge amount of additional pressure either directly or through volunteering um, on the on the guys and girls that, um, that support us through the fire and rescue service. But, um, I'd like to move on uh, and, and talk a little bit about fire safety policy as that's the uh, the issue that we are um, considering today in a bit more significant detail. Clearly, the government is giving it a lot of thought alongside a wide range of stakeholders. Um, you served as fire minister, as you mentioned earlier, during your parliamentary career, among other government roles that you held. In your opinion, how has fire safety policy changed from when you were closely involved with it? Well, um Fire safety policy had been changing um, because nothing is static. Grenfell changed everything, and, and looking back, it had been changing. Um, files like Lackanall House showed um, that the whole landscape um, of construction, building, building safety, fire safety had uh, had been changing, and it hadn't kept pace with uh, developments. Um, the numbers of people, however, killed at Grenfell showed uh, shone the at the spotlight and there was no hiding place after that and what we've had in the past uh, few years has been an intensified examination of what's happened um, to fire safety over recent decades and it's been clear to everybody um, and it had been apparent um, for some time to some that there had been a comprehensive failure uh, to keep fire safety up to date. Um, over the last 30 years the uh, the whole landscape of construction and, and buildings had changed, the way we plan, uh, building control, monitoring and enforcement, the way we design buildings, modern methods of construction, new materials. All the time the basics were becoming more complex and 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 what was and what failed was that government didn't keep the regulations up to speed um, and, and, and and pace with those those changes that were ongoing. Um, and um, on the ground, uh, things were were basically being missed, um, and Grenfell um, was the most tragic demonstration um, that things were going badly, badly wrong, uh, and needed a forensic examination to bring us up to speed. Sure, I absolutely agree with you. I think um, Grenfell sadly has been a, a huge wake-up call for us, and you, you mentioned Lackanall House and uh, the incident that happened there, um, and you know, reflecting on the response to that fire, it seems as if we missed a trick and uh, 
the government should have taken things further forward at that point, um, which which may have seen some changes, which would have avoided the uh, the, the the incident at Grenfell. Um, I also reflect on the fact that as an as a country, we seem to have uh, a very much adopted um, a a stable door approach to legislation, and you know look back to the Woolworths fire and the the fire at the Rose and Crown in Saffron Walden and the legislation that fell out of it. Um, you know, as a fire safety professional, was quite encouraged by the introduction of the regulatory reform order and a different approach to fire safety, despite the fact that, to all intents and purposes, it was uh, forced on us through European directives. But do you think that given our experience that the, the, the Grenfell f incident will act as a sufficient catalyst for change? Well, I think your um, analysis is absolutely right, Harold. Um, all of our fire safety legislation, um, without exception, I, I, I think, um, can be attributed to a disaster or a tragedy um, where government has been forced to act. And you mentioned uh, several. Um, and uh, you can point the finger at a whole number of others. Um, and when people die, government acts. Um, it's, it's horrible to say it. Um, and it's difficult to criticise people for shroud waving. But sometimes we have to wave those shrouds as vigorously as possible to get government's attention and to, to make sure we take advantage of the horrendous opportunities which are presented to us simply because people die. Uh, the Grenfell inquiry will demonstrate ultimately just how much change um, was needed and um, is needed um, and is already being um, implemented. The, the Danger to Attacker inquiry and its recommendations have already had an impact. Uh, government's already bringing in um, new procedures and, and regulations. Um, the testing and the failure of cladding um, is already altering buildings. Um, with uh, remedial work being undertaken right across um, the UK, um, with cladding being taken down and, and, and being replaced. And the ownership of buildings, um, uh, freeholders and leaseholders and rentals, and the, the regulations in terms of their different responsibilities are being uh, rewritten. Um, and hundreds of thousands of homes and high-rise buildings have been affected negatively, either from a, an environmental point of view, from an economic point of view, or from a safety uh, viewpoint. Um, Grenfell showed there was catastrophic and comprehensive failure right across the board. Um, government and its uh, regulations, local government, in terms of planning and building control, uh, the lack of pro proper monitoring and enforcement, and construction, uh, design, Materials, workmanship uh, led to accusations of uh, failure by architects, designers, engineers, suppliers, contractors and, and subcontractors. No one um, uh, at any level escapes some responsibility um, uh, for Grenfell right the way through to accusations of cost cutting and corruption, which are emerging from the inquiry. Um, this um, is going to be a complete and utter a rewriting of the rules, the regulations, um, and rebuilding of our architectural landscape. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, it's already started happening, and it will continue to happen for, for years to come. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, Jim. I, I, I think that the the approach that government is taking to, um, to the tragic events at Grenfell, in terms of the 
the changes we've already seen, changes to legislation. We've seen a review of the um, of approved document B and building regulations being undertaken. We've seen two new regulators being set up, two new pieces of legislation being brought to bear, and all of the work that's gone on behind the scenes in terms of of competency and the work that Hackett did. Um, you 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 mentioned the word responsibility there, um, and that you know everybody has to hold their hands up to a certain extent and say, yes, we, we've not got things right. Do you, do you think the proposals are, are, are going to drive a greater degree of responsibility and accountability for those involved in the process? I think there, uh, there has to be. I think there's an acceptance that there ought to be. Um, the fact that um, governments um, bringing in uh, new regulators um, to actually oversee um, the work that's been undertaken, the materials that are, are being used, uh, the way that buildings are being constructed, um, they're all fundamental um, aspects of, uh, of making um, the, uh, the landscape safer. Uh, and it's no um, surprise that, uh, that if, if the interpretation by government is fudged, then, um, then things will go badly wrong on building sites. As you said, there needs to be clarity, but also accountability. And for that, you need monitoring and enforcement. And for that, you need the body responsible. And the government's creating the responsibility to oversee the qualifications and the skills of people who undertake the work and accreditation of those in particular in fire safety. And Dame Judith said that the culture has to change. And, uh, and I think it will change. I think there are fair comparisons with um, road safety. Uh, where um, fatalities have also been uh, successfully uh, reduced. Um, public awareness of vehicle safety features is, is higher than it's ever been. Uh, seat belts, airbags, stability control, anti-skid brakes, crush push uh, shells, um, and others uh, combined with public awareness and hostility to drink driving, speeding, mobile phone use, etc., creates a safety culture. We need the same transparency and awareness for building safety. So initiatives like the FPA's Know Your Building help create that understanding. Um, and people need to understand where they're working, where they're visiting, where they're living, so that they're, they're safe in their own homes. And we can't say that at the moment. No, absolutely. But it, it's a really interesting correlation when you make those observations about road safety. Um, Clearly, if there's a desire to make change at government level and and within industry, um, then it can be made. You know, you've reeled off a list of uh, of improvements and and benefits that have been brought to bear through you know that particular stream, which have, without any shadow of a doubt, made a you know made a huge impact. Um, we can only hope that um, you know we see similar impacts from the from the work that's going on um, surrounding fire safety in the built environment. Um, clearly, our our focus has got to be on life safety. And, but I, I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on whether we were missing an opportunity here to maybe look at the property protection side of, 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 of things, as well as the focus on life safety, which has got to be the primary concern. Um, the reason for asking the question, I suppose, is that, um, again, thinking of your correlation with, with, with road safety, um, a tragic accident on the roads um, leads to the loss of life potentially, or, or or injuries which people can't, you know, necessarily or will be life changing for them, um, and that can affect families. Um, and families can be affected by a, 
a number of things. You know, a, a significant fire in a school, for example, can mean that coursework is lost or community facility is lost. Um, do you think we have an opportunity here to 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 change the landscape a little to um, to make property protection a a more fundamental consideration when we're we're looking at fire safety? Well, I think there's um, a greater understanding that um, any building, whichever function it's um, uh, used for, has a, a, a degree of um, life risk. Um, it may not be occupied by many people. Um, it may be a data center, which has hardly got any staff in at all. But even if it comes to having an incident and fire crews have to turn up, then those firefighter lives are important. Therefore, buildings need to be able to, it needs to be demonstrated that buildings will um, perform in ways that is expected because of the way that they've been, they've been built. Um, where there is um, uh, intense life risk in hospitals and in schools and in high-rise um, office buildings, um, they're not covered by residential risk and therefore at the moment um, seem to be a bit outside the scope of what's being undertaken. We need to make sure that we drag them in. The only way we're going to get improvements in safety is by um, arguing for it, uh, lobbying for it, campaigning for it. Because there will always be people on the other side who will be arguing that it will cost too much or it's impractical or it's over the top. Um, and not because they want to see people die, but simply because we've got a different perspective on things. We're in the fire safety side. The people expect us to be in the front of the arguments, taking them to government and doing the lobbying and doing the campaigning. Um, and in that instance, we do have an opportunity at the moment um, to include buildings which are outside the scope of regulation at the moment and try and get the protection to people increased by making sure that buildings will be safe whenever people visit them. Yeah, without, without any shadow of a doubt, I, th I think that there is far more that we can do um, and we certainly should be better engaged in that. Um, I've been encouraged by um, the recommendations in the Hackett Report, particularly um, associated with uh, defining more clearly the roles and responsibilities of those involved in the process. And and I think it will be great to, um, to be able to press upon um, clients potentially uh, for them to be maybe more aware of of what they have options for that it's not just about meeting um, minimum legislative requirements for life safety but they have a they have the, the option there to say actually i want my building to be more resilient than you know, may necessarily have, have considered in the first place um over the discussions you've made reference to um new pieces of legislation that are being introduced um to new regulators that are being brought into play, um, which is already positive and and seems to be taking the situation in the right direction. Um, that, although, appears to be coming more so from government and a government direction. Do you think that there's more that the, the wider industry, the fire industry, construction industry, commercial property owners and such like can do to assist in making the changes that are required um, in, in developing and, and maintaining safe premises? Yeah, I do. I think that um, uh, there, there has to be um, buy-in um, from industry, from uh, everything, architects, engineers, uh, the developers themselves, um, the construction companies, the contractors and subcontractors. They've got to recognise that it's in their interest to make sure that what they're building um, is something which is going to be safe and is not going to um, damage the people who are going to be occupying it either for work or for uh, residential purposes, um, which means that there have to be 
um, regulations laid down to allow them to understand what framework they're supposed to be operating within. Um, the skills, the qualifications, the accreditation, um, the, the regulator overseeing the buildings are being constructed the way that they were designed, and that material is being used uh, that was actually specified and is not being substituted by something else which is supposed to be like it or will do the job as good as, and then it turns out that it's not as good at all. Um, so the industry has to buy in. Um, and I'm sure there will be resistance from the industry in terms of the pressure um, on the costs for them um, of additional training, um, of additional staff, of additional um, uh, materials that they will have to, or better materials that they will have to buy. Um, that's where the balance comes in in terms of lobbying. You know, we think we've got an, an open door through which we can walk and just put our checklist in front of the government minister and say, that's, a, that's, what, that's what we'd like to see happen. And nobody's going to come in and say, well, that's over the top, that's unnecessary, um, that's gold-plated, that's red tape. Um, there are people on the other side who've got a different perspective and a different point of view, not because they want buildings to be unsafe, but simply because they think they can do the job um, as safely with less of that which we think is required. And in that instance, we need to make sure we're lobbying as effectively and persuading people in the industry. And the insurance companies have got a big role to play in this because ultimately they're the ones who will be picking up the tab um, when things go wrong. Um, and in that instance, um, just as it does with car insurance, you'll get reductions on your car insurance if you've got more safety features than if you're buying an old jalopy, um, which has got no safety features whatsoever, and you're 18 years old and you don't know how to drive properly. Um, that's why they ramp up the costs for insurance for young people, because they know the risks are so much greater. Well, the insurance companies um, have got a responsibility to help developers um, and others make the right decision as to how they should construct a building and what the building should look like when it's finished. Mm -hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think that um, that sometimes the insurance sector gets a bit of a uh, uh, gets the rough end of the stick. Um, having worked with with insurers for some years um, through their their close relationship with with FPA and uh, and through Risk Authority, I'm 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 really aware of the work that they do in supporting businesses to get things right, um, and the amount of guidance and advice that they're able to offer. Um, sadly, sometimes um, I think we are. Uh, Industry is is potentially suspicious of that guidance, um, and uh, and 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 steers clear of it. Um, but you make an interesting point about frameworks, um, and I think one of the concerns that I have is 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 around the potential here for for people gaming the system, which you know, which to a certain extent you you alluded to. Um, clearly, the changes that we're looking at coming forward um, are focused on, uh, as we've been learnt, learnt to call them, buildings in scope. So high-rise residential, healthcare, boarding school dormitories and those those sorts of things. And I think as we've seen in a number of other areas, um, you know, there's a requirement for sprinklers in buildings over 18 metres formally. Um, contractors would build something that was about 17 and a half metres to the top floor to avoid having to install sprinklers. Um, in your experience as a, as a, as a policymaker, um, do you think we're missing a trick potentially by... Um, placing a focus only on these buildings in scope rather than making them applicable across um, the built environment? Well, I think that um, that's the 
and a $64,000 question, how do you how do you draw a line um, so that it encompasses what you want to happen um, and not um, sell yourself short or put too much um, pressure and requirements um, on others who can't afford to do them? Um, and that's the process of living in, in a democracy and having the opportunity to, to lobby and to discuss and to argue um, uh, what's best. You know, the, the regulations are only drafted as they are because um, civil servant experts and ministers listened to the arguments that were put forward previously and accepted the opinion um, that was being presented, which is why we end up with the 18-meter uh, limit. Um, we've got the opportunity at the moment to be able to use all the evidence from Grenfell, from Lacanau, um, from other um, files that are taking place, um, particularly in the commercial and industrial uh, sector, and say your regulations are inadequate because look what happened in this fire, look what happened in this high-rise, look how many people died in, in this conflagration. Um, we've got the opportunity at the moment to, to move the goalposts further than they've been moved before. And I don't think it's unfair that we ought to take advantage of that because once the Grenfell inquiry has shut up shop and gone away and the rules and regulations have been written, we won't have another opportunity to rewrite the rules and the laws until we have another disaster. Um, and there will be other disasters because um, things happen that we cannot foresee. Um, we can make the landscape safer than it was before, um, but when we do have the opportunity to use hindsight, we've got to grab it with both hands and push as much as hard and as far as we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whilst I appreciate, and I'm, I'm sure we all do, the need to focus on those um, most at risk, um, I agree with you. There's an opportunity here to do things differently, and and clearly a um, you know some pressure on. The, the fire industry um, to continue lobbying and to continue to make noises and continue to present evidence which will uh, you know which will help change minds potentially um, so we, we, we've talked a lot about the the current state of play and and what's happening today um, but just for a moment I'd, I'd, I'd just like to like you to imagine that we're fast forwarding 10 years um, how will we go about evaluating whether the the major policies that are being debated and introduced now, in 2021 have been successful or not? Well, I think that will be a, a very simple um, comparison with um, the statistics of um, numbers of people killed in, in fires and, and such like, um, insurance losses um, and how much insurance companies have had to pay out um, as a result of fires which have taken place in buildings where perhaps there is no life risk, therefore you can't count um, and, and numbers of uh, bodies, um, public awareness and the ability um, of people to recognise that when they go into a building, um, either as a resident or an occupant um, or as a worker, if there's something wrong with that building, they know who to contact and who to complain to um, and that things are, are, are going to happen and that something is going to be, be done. Um, 
It used to be, going back to the, the car analogy, you went to buy a new car, then the salesperson uh, would tell you how fast it went from not to 60 and how many seconds. Um, that's gone. You go to a car showroom now, they're talking about mileage, they're talking about um, uh, the environmental emissions rate, they're talking about how safe the car is with all the features that will protect uh, your partner and your, your family. Um, we need the same um, uh, translation into to, to building safety and to fire safety. People have got to recognise that they have a right to expect more, that they've got a right to complain, they know who to complain to, and they get action when it happens. Um, and in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, when we look at the stats that emerge from the uh, 2020s and forward, there ought to be fewer building fires fewer people are dying and fewer uh, costs to insurance companies have to pay out compensation. Mm, absolutely. No, that, that's a, you make a really interesting point there about public awareness. So, you know, certainly it's, it's easy to count numbers. It's easy to count money and, and um, look at deaths and injuries and, and looked at losses. And whilst we appreciate that, you know, the number of fire deaths is diminishing and, 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 long may that continue we also see that um insurance losses sadly are increasing um but at the same time the point you make about public awareness i think is really interesting it's uh, you know dame judith in a review of um of, of circumstances building regulations and such like has clearly placed um a significant emphasis on public voice and and how do residents get an opportunity to know who is responsible who to complain to what kind of environment they're looking in and, and i think that that will make a significant difference because if there's pressure from um from those who are actually taking recourse to the premises not just those that are counting numbers um i, I think that um you know government building owners and such like will have to take notice well people used to go into buildings and fire exits used to be padlocked and there was always result of Bradford City fire and other disasters um, where fire exits were blocked that people started realizing that ought not to happen and they then complained um, and generally speaking to the manager of the premises and they they then unlocked it or they went outside and then went out to the local fire station people need to know how to complain who to complain to and to ensure that they get action because they shouldn't feel unsafe wherever they go in the public uh, environment most certainly, uh, uh, you know, th there's clearly been some success with the the food hygiene ratings that you now see on restaurant windows and restaurant doors, um, and and I have seen people mooting the idea of having a you know a similar approach to to building safety, but um, that may be just a, a step too far at the moment. The FPA's campaign, know your building, which you 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 know how because you're much more involved in it. Um, that's doing exactly that, and the, the know your building has already got twenty five thousand hits, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. That's you know one way that organisations like the FPA um, are, are trying to help, and hopefully others will be doing uh, similar things. And government ought to be doing its own public safety campaigning. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. We you know we see as an organisation that so many. Um, business owners or property owners just don't understand what they've got. They genuinely don't. Um, the amount of work we're doing at the moment in developing fire safety strategies for all, you know, retrospectively uh, for, for for buildings is is really quite phenomenal. Uh, but I think people are waking up um, to the idea that they they need to understand what they've got and how best to manage it going forward. Because at the moment that 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 knowledge is sadly lacking. 
Jim, it, it sort of leaves me just to to say thank you for your for your time today and sharing your insights. It's been really interesting, uh, and thank you very much for taking some time out to chat with us. Um, but but just before you go, um, there's one thing which we haven't really touched on, which I'd just like you to ask you about, and um, that's your role within FireAid. Well, FireAid is the UK fire industry's um, main international aid and development charity. Um, it's only a wee charity. I've been chair since we formed and uh, we're registered with the charity commissioners. Um, we are small and completely reliant on donations from uh, fire and rescue services uh, mostly, who supply us with second-hand kit um, from appliances through to PPE. We deliver to over 50 countries worldwide, including um, a number of former Soviet satellites in Eastern Europe, and provide the equipment and training to local services and volunteers uh, on how to save lives in fires, in post-crash response, mountain rescues and other basic techniques. Um, we're always looking for assistance through volunteers, equipment or financial donations. And um, anybody who is uh, interested can check out our website, uh, which is www.fire-aid.org um, and have a look at what we do because um, we're only small. Um, we rely entirely on the generosity of companies and fire and rescue services and personnel within the industry, um, both public and private, to, to deliver what we do. And we are saving lives across the world. We're very proud of it. Um, and we're proud to be the UK Fire Industries um, International Aid Charity. Excellent. Jim, thanks very much indeed. Um, again, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and, and, and thanks for taking some time out to, to join us on our on our very first podcast. Um, best wishes for um, your continued engagement in the in the fire industry and particularly uh, with Fire Aid and of course um, your role as a non-executive director of the FBI. We're, uh, we're absolutely delighted to have you on board. Um, thanks again and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Hello, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. So we hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast, created as part of our Know Your Building campaign. To hear more episodes or for more information and resources on Know Your Building, which is helping building owners and managers reduce the risk of fire, please visit www.thefpa.co.uk and search Know Your Building.